0: forty here so many people are just how can you say it? they're just tight asses I mean they're afraid to awaken the gerbil within I mean they just go through life you know all clenched right I mean clenched and tight ass is no way to go through life man if you adopt the Alexander technique you can learn to let go of these unnecessary muscular hoarding patterns you can stop compressing and tightening and and pulling down and in on yourself and you can learn to release your inner gerbil you can awaken the gerbil within and you can take control of your financial spiritual and physical destiny by awakening the gerbil within and i can't wait to tell you about how 17 tiny rodents just completely transformed my life they they taught me how to love they they opened me up to new and exciting possibilities. I, I didn't realize that I was walking around like all clenched and just, you know, tight ass and and just like holding hiding holding my inner gerbil within. Right? And it's I haven't really lived. I'm fifty-six before I have I have come to peace and ease with with releasing my inner gerbil like letting that little fella just waken up and i'm talking spiritually all right i'm talking the spiritual gerbil all right i'm letting the the spiritual gerbil inside me just awaken unleash and teach me how to love along with 16 of his friends it's just an amazing experience
1: good evening and welcome to tucker carlson tonight imagine for a moment something you've probably never done before but imagine for just a second that you are joe biden You have spent your entire life in politics. You've ascended to high office, but in fact you have achieved very little. As political careers inevitably do, yours is ending in bitterness and failure. You've sacrificed your entire life to personal ambition, but you have nothing to show for it. You have no close friends. Your family is in tatters. Of your two surviving children, one is a drug addict, and the other, your only living daughter, has been arrested repeatedly and has also wound up in rehab. She blames her sexual compulsions on the fact that you took showers with her as a child. You've never been charged for doing that, but everyone around you knows that you did. At this point, your wife thinks so little of you that she demanded you keep working despite the fact she knew perfectly well that you had dementia. In retrospect, your life has amounted to a very sad story. And saddest of all, it's almost over. Weeks from now, you will turn 80. This is the point in the journey where a decent man turns inward. Old age is the pause that God gives us to reflect on what we've done and what we've left undone. And above all, to ponder where we might be going next. If you're Joe Biden, you would ponder that. How could you not? But Joe Biden is not doing that. In the final days of his 79th year, Joe Biden is not asking questions about the fate of his soul. He's making pronouncements about yours. The soul of the nation, as he puts it. That's the topic of his primetime speech tomorrow night. Don't expect to hear anything transcendent as he speaks We haven't seen the transcript, but we can say with confidence that Biden will not say a word about the single gravest problem that our country faces, which is the utter lack of meaning in our national life. What exactly do we believe as Americans? What's the point of all of this? Fighting climate change? Yelling about diversity and equity and trans rights? It can't be the point. Those are fads. They're not ideals. And if they're all we have, we're in trouble. There is a yawning void at the center of American identity. No wonder everybody's gone crazy. But don't expect Biden to address any of that tomorrow night. Biden is above all a partisan, a team player, right or wrong. So naturally, he will use his time to push for partisan advantage ahead of the coming midterm elections. And that alone is not surprising. That's what most politicians would do. But Biden is different in this way. In his age, Biden has lost all sense of proportion and restraint. His fine motor skills are gone. He no longer persuades, he bludgeons. Quote, what we're seeing now is either the beginning or the death knell of extreme MAGA philosophy, he announced in his speech last week. It's not just Trump, it's the entire philosophy. It's like semi-fascism. Fascists. That's what the other side is, says Joe Biden. An American president comparing tens of millions of his own people to the moral monsters we shot and bombed and later hung from the gallows in World War II. The children and grandchildren of Americans who died fighting the Nazis are now themselves Nazis, says Joe Biden, because they vote Republican. It's hard to believe that any U.S. president would say something like that, even in private. But Joe Biden just did because they vote Republican. And then a few hours later, at a high school gym, he said it again.
2: And we're not glad anyone or anything tear America apart. I'll close with this. We're at a serious moment in our nation's history. The MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They're a threat to our very democracy. We must be stronger, more determined, and more committed to saving America than the MAGA Republicans are destroying America.
1: They're destroying democracy, says the same politician who had the FBI raid the home of the man who's running against him in the next election. They're destroying democracy by voting for the wrong people. They're attempting self-government, and that's an attack on democracy. It was all so crazy and over the top, so yes, extreme, that you couldn't believe the White House press office would even try to defend it. It would have been better to announce that Biden must have had a stroke, apologize, and then move on. And yet the White House seemed completely unashamed of what he said. Biden's history-making publicist, the single dumbest person ever to hold that job, explained that her boss had spoken intentionally and with precision. He, quote, called it what it is, meaning Biden called Republicans what they are. They're Nazis. He said so. Next question. Having established his political opponents are fascists, Biden said about describing what they do, but you already knew what they do. Nazis murder people. It's who they are. So it shouldn't surprise you that on January 6th, Republicans killed, quote, several police officers. Biden said that yesterday. Watch this.
2: Imagine, Joe, if you turn on the television in Washington, D.C., and saw so a mob of a 1,000 people storming down the hallways of the parliament, breaking down the doors, trying to overturn an outcome of election, and killing several police officers in the meantime.
1: Did you just hear that? On Insurrection Day last year, Donald Trump's Nazi QAnon army, quote, killed several police officers. Really? We didn't know that. How many police officers were killed, Joe Biden? Can you be more specific? Can you tell us their names? He can't, of course, and he didn't because there aren't any. Not one. The only person we can say for sure who was killed on January 6th was an unarmed female Trump voter called Ashley Babbitt who posed no physical threat to anyone. She was shot to death by a reckless police officer. That killing was never investigated because she was a Nazi, and you don't need an excuse to kill Nazis. With Nazis, the season never closes. There's no bag limit. Shoot all you want. That's the message. When you're a Nazi, there is no limit to what they can do to you and feel morally justified as they do. Now, there was a time not so long ago when Democratic leaders told us that beat cops were Nazis. Remember that? They were the Nazis. Joe Biden's own vice president raised bail money collected through something called the Minnesota Freedom Fund in order to free people accused of committing violence against the police. One of the so-called protesters that Kamala Harris helped spring from jail was a felon called Sean Michael Tillman. He was out for three weeks before authorities say he shot a man to death at a train station. Now, shortly after Kamala Harris boosted the Minnesota Freedom Fund, Joe Biden rewarded her by choosing her as his vice presidential running mate. So at the time, Biden was much less concerned with violence against law enforcement. His party was encouraging it. Cops were getting ambushed all over the country. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 2020, a man called Ronnie Cato threatened to execute police officers and then made good on his threat. He shot two cops. He killed one of them. In the Bronx that year, a man called Robert Williams approached two police officers in a marked police car. He pulled out a gun and for no stated reason opened fire. Twelve hours later, Williams arrived at the 41st police precinct and started to shoot at more cops. He only stopped when he ran out of ammunition. This is a trend and it continues to this day. Ambush style attacks on the police increased in 2021, and they're up again this year. In fact, they're up 50% so far in 2022. How has Joe Biden responded to all of this? Did he alert the Justice Department to shut it down? No, he did the opposite. He invited leaders of BLM to the White House. That would be the same BLM that just a few years earlier publicly called for the murder of police officers in Minnesota. Pigs in a blanket fry like bacon. Kill the police. That was fine with Joe Biden. So his position on cop killing, we can say with certainty, has changed in recent years. But then so have his views on a lot of things, including national unity. So here's a video that we have saved for more than a year and a half. It was recorded just after the election just in justice protests of January 6th. At the time, Biden said he wanted to bring the country together. Do you remember this? Here it is.
2: Today... On this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. We can join forces, stop the shouting and lower the temperature. And so today, at this time, in this place, let's start afresh.
1: Stop the shouting, lower the temperature, unite our nation. That's exactly right. Whatever happened to that Joe Biden? We'd vote for that Joe Biden, probably. We'd certainly like him back, but we can't now. America has changed too much. Why? Because the Biden program didn't work. It turns out the country needed more than equity. We needed competence. We needed someone wise to run the Federal Reserve. We needed engineers who actually understand how energy grids work and don't just posture about them. We needed a Pentagon that could win wars and a State Department that at least occasionally considered the interests of the United States. We needed federal law enforcement that cared above all about justice. We needed intel agencies that spy on our enemies, not on our citizens. But unfortunately, we didn't get any of that. So inevitably, things started to fray. Not all these trends are Joe Biden's fault. He had a lot of help over decades. But a lot of this is Joe Biden's fault. And he can't admit it, just as he can't face the prospect of his own eternal future as his 80th birthday approaches. So he externalizes it. He yells at you, not himself. You're the problem. You're the reason things are broken. Your racism, your transphobia, your minivan. It's your fault. You stood in the way of progress. You are a Nazi. We hereby declare war on you. That's exactly what you're seeing. That's happening. And you wonder, as Joe Biden attempts this, if he can pull it off. Middle class America is the problem? That's not an easy case to make. There are too many facts in the way of it. For example, last Thursday, the same day that Joe Biden announced that Republicans were fascists, that same day was perhaps not by chance the very same day that Joe Joe Rogan aired his interview with Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. In that conversation, Zuckerberg admitted that he censored the views of Hunter Biden's laptop, any news of it whatsoever, because the FBI told him to. The FBI told Zuckerberg this was Russian propaganda, even when they knew for a fact that it was not because they had the laptop. In other words, the FBI interfered with the presidential election. That seems like a big story. In fact, it seems like a turning point. But Joe Biden ignored it completely. In a speech that day, Biden lashed out at anyone who might dare complain about the FBI. Quote, it's sickening to see the new attacks on the FBI, he said, suggesting that what seemed like legitimate criticism was, in fact, a threat of violence. Speech is violence. But Biden was not alone in delivering that message. That very same day, the Justice Department's designated mouthpiece at NBC News, a man called Frank Figaluzzi, defended the FBI in social media to the same effect, and so did many others. So if you step back, it started to look coordinated and you began to wonder, could it be that Joe Biden is not simply a lone elderly Democratic politician? Could it be that Joe Biden is a mouthpiece for much larger forces? It's hard not to to conclude that because no single American president could eliminate this many core civil liberties all by himself in a year and a half. All of a sudden, permanent Washington can raid the home of a former president. He had nuclear secrets. No, he didn't. Whatever. Who cares? He's bad and then round up his personal attorneys and then steal their privileged communications. That's never been allowed. It is now. No single president did that. No single president could turn trespassing in a public building into a felony and then arrest hundreds of people for it and send them to solitary confinement in the D.C. jail. No single president could do that. No single president could redefine an entire opposition party as Nazis and then proceed as if that were perfectly normal. That couldn't happen. No president could... Okay,
0: that's that's just uh, getting a little tiresome. So let's get some more interesting material here on Richard Spencer's blog. No, on his Twitter. All right, last man would look like Andrew Tate and espouse the Christian moralism of Martin Luther King. So Brian tweets, main problem I have with Pop Nietzscheans is they consistently misidentify which of these two is a genuine Ubermensch and which is motivated by resentment. So... Uh, Kyle Cheney tweets, Trump is spending his morning on Truth Social, directly posting 4chan and Q messages a day after calling to be reinstated as president. He's doing explicitly what he used to try to shade or use coded language for. And as to the idea, by any possible measure, Russia is winning the war in Ukraine. Well, Ukraine's just launched an offensive and is taking back a lot of ground. So not when measured by the stated expectation of the Russians and their shills who predicted Russia would take Kiev within a week. Here we are six months later. It's a by with no end in sight. Well, now we've got a massive uh, Ukrainian offensive. Come on, man. I'm trying to, trying to run a show here. So this is a good point by Tucker, uh, Richard. Tucker's only possible explanation is that Joe Biden secretly wants to destroy the West to usher in Chinese global dominance, the dissident right, so mind-numbingly stupid. So this is the worst take on history I've encountered. Let's uh, play this little excerpt Joe here. Biden
1: is calling for an unconditional surrender from Vladimir Putin. Here's the weird thing. By any actual reality-based measure, Vladimir Putin is not losing the war in Ukraine. He is winning the war in Ukraine. And Joe Biden looks at that and says, we won't stop until you proffer an unconditional surrender. This isn't bad policy. This is nuts. It makes no sense. In fact, it only makes sense if the goal is to completely destroy the West in order to make way for Chinese global dominance. What would be the other explanation for this behavior?
0: Yeah, I remember when I heard that, I thought that is exactly as Richard puts it, mind numbingly stupid. And... uh, which she says, it's weird to associate Tucker Carlson with the distant right, which is an online phenomenon. I'm used to the online right being disconnected from talking heads, but Tucker clearly staffs his show with distant right people and desperately seeks their approval. The Andrew Tate interview is just one example. Very sad. And uh, Andrew Tate, right? N- I'm not impressed. when I When I hear him speak, I would say I'm unimpressed about four times as much as I am impressed. So... Zoomer tweets about Andrew Tate. He's a trafficker and a scumbag. He says some vaguely correct things, ineloquently, mixes it with stupid things that people are defending him, is reactionary and immoral thinking. So this is uh, Andrew Ladies Tate and on Tucker Carlson. It comes
3: hard and fast. You lose your Facebook, then your Instagram, then your Gmail, then your Discord, then your website hosting, then your domain name, like, then your payment processor, then your bank. like
4: It's just like, in real time, you're watching your phone and apps just exploding. Boom, boom, boom.
0: Such a loss to public discourse. Intellectualist tweets. Known timeline. July 31, Trump spoke with Putin. August 3, 2019, Trump issued a request for a list of top U.S. spies. October 5, 2021, CIA admits losing dozens of informants. August 26, 2022, documents at Mar-a-Lago could compromise human intelligence. And then Richard Spencer says, due to big tech censorship, I just wasn't aware of how absolutely cool Hunter Biden is. So there's now my son, the Hunter, the the Hunter Biden movie. OK, so perhaps the, the most important story right now is the the stigma that, uh, people with, with monkeypox are facing. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, how these people are suffering and, and what really chokes me up. I mean, what's, (laughs) what's about to awaken my gerbil inside. All right. is is the notion that so many people think it's a good idea to stigmatize antisocial self-destructive behavior. I mean, if we start stigmatizing antisocial, self-destructive behavior, I mean, where does that end? i tell you where it ends. It ends in Auschwitz. I mean, monkeypox, anyone could catch it, right? You're going to church for a Bible study. There are all sorts of like pro-social, healthy, moral outlets, activities that you could engage in and end up with, with monkeypox. And it, it, where does it begin, right? It, it begins with You know, an odd-looking pimple or just maybe a weird rash or perhaps a sudden wave of fatigue in the middle of a hot summer day. Thank God the New York Times is on this story. The doctor was stumped or he said it was not a big deal or maybe he said it was monkeypox. But you know what these people have to deal with? Pain, fear, stigma, right? So I know you're thinking, well, what do people who have survived monkeypox, which is like a greater feat than surviving the Holocaust? What do people who survived... Monkeypox, want you to know. Isn't that what you're curious about right now? What do people who have survived monkeypox want you to know? Thank God for the New York Times. Seven patients share their stories of devastating symptoms, their frustration over finding care, and their efforts to help each other when doctors and officials have failed. America has failed the monkeypox test. America has failed. Our gay community, America has failed. Our gay community likes to engage in orgies and take a lot of meth. We have totally failed these people. I mean, poor Miguel here, pictured Miguel Ande. He spent a month quarantined with monkeypox and his dog. All right, we've got eighteen thousand cases identified across the United States, uh, mostly men who have promiscuous sex with men. Now. If only we could increase access to an effective antiviral medication called T-pox and and vaccinate thousands of people, most at risk. Think about how much good we could do. I mean, gay men could get back out there participating in, you know, gay meth-fueled orgies and just, you know, really let loose. They wouldn't have to clench and try to hold that that gerbil within, but they they could awaken the gerbil within. I mean, but for many people, they get infected lesions. They get they get swollen swollen genitals. I mean, the, the suffering is just unbelievable. And and where are we as as a nation? Like, are we just morally indifferent to what's going on? I mean, even those with mild cases are forced to isolate at home for weeks, away from family, friends, pets, uh, and a good gay meth-fueled orgy. Like. Just imagine you have to go a month without participating in a meth your orgy. You're going to carry deep psychological wounds. And then, what about the social stigma inflicted by ignorant people who think, oh, it's a good idea to stigmatize antisocial self-destructive behavior? I mean, imagine how frustrated, deeply frustrated you would be as a regular gay meth orgy participant about our sluggish public health response that's leaving so many in your meth-fueled gay orgy community so vulnerable, right? Monkeypox, you know, mainly spreads through homosexual promiscuity. Now, fatalities are rare, but my my God, I mean, the suffering of these people. These guys didn't have monkeypox on their radar. What, What do they have on their radar? They're getting another cock, right? That's what they wanted. All they wanted was 17 more cocks. And what do they end up with? They end up with monkeypox. And if they just limited it to 15, they would have been fine. But then, like, you go to a, an orgy, you have 17 cocks, and then you get some strange pimple appearing on the palm of your hand, and you start freaking out. What if you're going to all these meth-fueled gay orgies and you don't have health insurance? I mean, where do you turn for consolation? Where do you turn for care? I mean, and then, let's say you get medical care, you're going to find doctors and nurses waiting for you in full protective equipment as if you've got the plague. I mean, some of them seem scared and baffled. They they speak to you from a distance. They're in hazmat suits. Think about how alienating that is for our fellow Americans who love Bethfield gay orgies. I mean, some medical professionals were caring, but others looked at him... In a stigmatizing way. I mean, how they've suffered. I mean, you get new lesions on your face, you get extreme itchiness. Some people have been kept awake with extreme itchiness for two days, and the lesions can just leave your face absolutely ravaged. It's enough to discourage many people from participating in Methfield Gay Orgies. When Methfield Gay Orgies, that's who we are as Americans. I mean, isn't that what we're fighting for in Ukraine? I mean, two decades ago, this this bloke was addicted to meth. He had AIDS. He was hospitalized for a month with pneumonia. But, I mean, let us celebrate the incorrigibility of the human spirit. Let us celebrate the dynamism of the human spirit. I mean, this guy had AIDS. This guy was addicted to meth. This guy was hospitalized for a month with pneumonia. But you think that stops him from sucking down another 49 cocks? Absolutely not. Right, He's been sober. He's had an undetectable HIV viral load. And now this monkeypox is triggering painful memories. I mean, he's scared. He's scared. And he's scared for his community. I mean, even while suffering, these people are thinking about others. I mean, poor Taylor. He thought his monkeypox was getting better right up until the minute he was admitted to the hospital. I mean, he'd been sick for two weeks, isolating like a good citizen. Like not even going to a gay orgy, right? And he's waking up with intense pain. He's got purple swelling above his genitals that's spreading towards his leg. I mean, I hate that. Whatever that happens to be, it just freaks me out. And I mean, I start thinking maybe I made a wrong choice. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I have to reexamine my, my conduct. I mean, he had to bundle up to cover his lesions and go to the emergency room. And, and his lesions are extremely infected. I mean, he got a CT scan. He got Oxycontin for the pain. He got bag after bag of intravenous antibiotics. I mean, the poor bloke he had to spend Saturday night in New York City in the emergency room. He'd rather be at the DMV. All right, monkeypox patients can be hospitalized for a range of complications, usually related to lesions or swelling in the throat or swelling in the rectum. I mean, that's one of my least favorite things. I mean, I don't like it, you know, if my cheek swells up or... You know, my my ankle swells up after getting bit by a stingray. But you know what I really don't like? It's the old swelling in the rectum. I mean, I find that a total downer. I I just, I don't know. I just feel unclean and dirty when that happens. Like, and all the lesions. I mean, it makes it difficult to eat, drink, go to the bathroom. And then, then you get like skin infections. And, And then... Medical authorities are just fumbling their response to this outbreak. I mean, how can Americans participate fully and vigorously in meth-fueled gay orgies and do it with a clear conscience, right, when medical authorities are just fumbling their response? I mean, he says the doctor... Whoa, you think that the Super Bowl is is competitive? I mean, you think, like, becoming chief rabbi of Israel is competitive? You think American elections are competitive? Well, hell, you don't know competitive until you have stepped into the mostly black and Latino LGBTQ subculture of dance and fashion, right? Which we all know so widely in recent years from TV shows like Pose and Legendary. I mean, that's where you get the real competition these days. I mean... When you see New York City's competitive ballroom scene, you're going to think that NFL players are a bunch of puffs and and faglers, God forbid, God forbid. So Dominic, he's known in the scene, right? Do you know Dominic in the scene? He's known as Dominic Ebony, right? And uh, he'd been competing at a ball on June twenty-five and. I don't have to tell you, mate, balls are busy places. I mean, there's lots of close contact. I mean, people are sucking and fucking. I mean, lots of hugging, you know, not just, I mean, it's not just genital focused. I mean, there's like a true communion of souls here, man. I mean, people in this community, we like to, you know, put our arms around each other's necks while we're talking. But, I mean, he tells the New York Times he hadn't had sex for more than a month before his symptoms began. And I absolutely believe him because anyone can get monkeypox. Like, you just put your arm around someone, you're very likely to get monkeypox. I mean, the first bump appears on his right temple, and what does he do? Of course, he scratches it. He thinks it's a pimple. He thinks maybe, you know, it's an allergic reaction to his new new soap. And then the second bump appears on the side of his penis. And I really don't enjoy the old rectal swelling, but something else that I find quite unappealing is the uh, bumps on my penis, right? It, It just... I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, it just, it just makes me feel like I made a mistake somewhere that went in a bad direction. You know, you start getting these bumps on your penis and then you start feeling nauseated and feverish. So, I don't know about you, but what I'd always do in these situations is I'd call my sexual health clinic. Do you have a sexual health clinic? It's, it's vitally important that all Americans over the age of five have their own personal sexual health clinic. You know, go down there, get the doctor swabbing your lesions. You know, go back to the monkey room when your rash gets worse. And uh, poor guy, he spent two weeks in his room with the blinds closed. He doesn't want to be seen. Like he feels like he's got chicken pox and the flu at the same time. And the mental toll of the isolation of no gay orgies. Just seeing all these ugly lesions on his body. I mean, that's as hard as the physical toll. And then his partner, his partner who cared for him, also got infected. So thank God for the t I mean, have you tried the t Nothing is better than the t at drying out monkeypox sores. And then what's that Benadryl? Like old reliable Benadryl really helps with the, you know, the genital itching. It took him uh, three weeks to return to his job at Boom Health in the Bronx, where he helps people get treatment for HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C. And uh, Dominique Ebony, he's a pioneer, man. He's one of the first people in New York City's ultra, ultra competitive ballroom scene to go public about his illness on Facebook because he found it frustrating that many people weren't heeding his warnings and limiting their participation in in gay orgy. You know, the monkeypox rash can be so subtle, right? You don't even know you have it. You think, oh, it's just another bump on my penis, just some more rectal swelling. You know, what's the big deal? little, little, little rectal swelling, you know, what's, what's the matter? And damn, then you come down with the old, the old monkeypox. And then so many doctors, they just, they misdiagnose you, right? I mean, you go to the dermatologist for your annual cancer screening, and yeah, you ask the doctor to take a look at your your lesions you know hey doc could you you know look at my swollen genitals i got you know a few lumps here on my pee oh no big deal mate just give it a couple days it should go away but then the old the old lesions don't go away they grow and they grow and then you get the pain the itchiness the old swelling of the penis and that really icky discharge right i mean this is the time guys to make an appointment with your primary care provider and uh, get informed, right? It's so important. To get People get informed about the classic monkeypox lesion. And uh, he, he was HIV positive, and so this put him in the high-risk category. He, he even kept his dog at arm's length so the, the animal's dismay and confusion. And even though he got treated, the genital pain just kept increasing. The pain and the genital swelling just kept increasing. Made it harder to sleep, and he'd allow the dog to lick his face, but, but that's it. I mean, that's it. I mean, this is a guy with with standards and boundaries. Like, okay, dog, you can lick my face, but no lower. That's absolutely it. And Baruch Hashem, within a week, the monkey had uh, pretty much cleared up. So. Every day at 6 p.m., Jeffrey turns on his webcam, just like this, starts a Zoom call with a few sick friends. There's an online support group for the dozens of people with uh, monkeypox. This is a great place to share about the loneliness of quarantine and the homophobic experiences that you get when you seek help from doctors and other people worry about telling their bosses, coworkers, or others in their lives you know, why they, they'd been out sick. I mean, if you got monkeypox... I urge you to shout it from the rooftops. Do not allow yourself to be stigmatized. All right? Tell people, tell everyone, put it on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. All right. And if you're crying, well, this whole community is crying with you. All right. Thank God there was a popular gay doctor on social media. Took the time to chat with this bloke when his own monkeypox symptoms began. And, uh, I don't know about you, but when I get monkeypox, I find it so important and so, when I get a pox, I like to have protective I count my lesions and then I count my blessings. But start with the lesions first. So, you know, about 65, this bloke, he'd fill the bathtub, he'd try to go to the bathroom, you know, the old rectal swelling genital swelling. He'd cry. He'd scream on the ground. Then he'd jump right into the bath because he's in so much pain from just trying to go to the bathroom. And uh, he lives with a roommate. He would sanitize everything, spray Lysol, and uh, basically living in his bedroom in his bleach-fjord bathroom. Okay, so Joshua got, Joshua got a surprising prescription along with his T-pox. Take a Take T-Pox with a meal of at least 600 calories and 25 grams of fat. So it's important, guys, when you're taking your T-Pox, always take it with a meal of at least 600 calories and 25 grams of fat. And you're saying, 40? Why the 25 grams of fat for my T-Pox? Well, the fat helps the medication's effectiveness. What many people don't realize, it's important to take the T-Pox with a meal of at least 600 calories, 25 grams of fat, and six beef organ capsules. Now, after you had that, it's important to do a few silent la So, this blood cooks four strips of bacon, downs two Eggo waffles with extra butter and syrup. I mean, this is what he's going for. I mean, these feasts, these are the, the small high points in a profound period of, of seclusion and mirror. And misery during, during quarantine. I mean, you feel hot, you feel faint, you get this irritated skin on the penis. Right, you, you go to your, your your sex clinic, and the doctors don't know—is it syphilis? Is it gonorrhea? Now, what is it? AIDS? What the hell is this? Right, not, not all doctors are as educated about monkeypox lesions as they should be. I mean, this bloke even even keeps his Chihuahua at a distance. He has a birthday, his 30th birthday, and he has to celebrate it over FaceTime with friends. He's an assistant store manager at Starbucks, man. I tell you what, in a stand against stigma and bigotry, I am flying to New York City. I'm going to find this man's Starbucks, and I'm going to ask him to make me a healthy Frappuccino. Because... I don't believe in stigmatizing people engaged in antisocial, self-destructive behavior. So thank God this man, when he returned to work, he told all his colleagues about his monkeypox. And uh, Baruch Hashem, everyone was good about it. No one was weird. Now, there was an unpleasant moment at work the following week. A customer overheard him telling a colleague about his recent bout with monkeypox and asked why he was allowed to come back to work. I told Antonio was cleared to come back. I've been bullied my whole life. And this account left him upset, but he had to let it go because some people are ignorant. Ignorant. Oscar Diaz, 30-year-old consultant and an artist. All right? I don't want to affect others. Right, right? Mr. Diaz, or MX Diaz, is queer, transgender, non-binary, he uses they, them pronouns, and... Got a lesion on his knuckle, tested positive for for monkeypox. Tried to get vaccinated against monkeypox like a responsible citizen, but because of widespread shortages, he had no success. And then he comes down with the old monkeypox. Wow. A single case of of monkeypox. People don't realize this. A single case of monkeypox, very likely to ruin your whole day. Ann Quarter says Trump's done.
5: Um, but a lot of people around him, a lot of these phony Tea Party groups, oh, write us a check. Um, but per- Palin was huge, and, and the rallies she would hold were as big as the Trump rallies. She just had to announce she was showing up any place in the country. In fact, they were more genuine than the Trump rallies. That lasted for about a year. And then people moved on and started looking at, we got another presidential election coming. We got midterms coming. We have other things to be concerned with. And and suddenly Sarah Palin, at least with the Tea Party crowd, the Trumpster crowd, it wasn't as big a draw. So I just figured Trump will follow that same trajectory. It seemed to be happening. It certainly seemed to be happening with his rallies where suddenly you had um, huge decks, the top deck, empty, empty, empty. The lower decks kind of thinly populated. Um, and it was basically being populated by the exact same people. It's, it's not as if he's going to, showing up in Henderson, Nevada, and everyone from the area comes out to see Trump. Um... No, it's the same. They're like deadheads. They're, fo- they're following him from place to place. He sings the same songs and woohoo, they're in the costume. Um, I was a deadhead, so I'm familiar with the phenomenon. It was a lot of fun. I'm sure the, the Trump heads are having a lot of fun, um, but it isn't indicative of a movement that's sweeping the nation. Um, and then the third thing that happened that made me very suspicious of a tweet I saw from a very good pollster um, was Roger Stone, part of the, the Trump email list. I don't know if you're getting the 800 emails per day from the, from the Trump organization. My father would like to meet with you. Um, Trump would like to have dinner with you our top supporters, blah, blah, blah. Um, Yeah, those come in. Seriously, I get 18 a day. Me. Um, I can't imagine how much the rest of you poor people are getting. Um, So on one of these, there's an email from Roger Stone, and he's slamming Ron DeSantis, the hero governor of Florida. And okay, I'm thinking, oh, man, Roger, Um, just to lead it, move on. Very soon after that, I don't know, days later, a week later, another email comes through from Roger Stone. And the subject line is something about you should read. I wish you people would read what I had to say about Ron DeSantis or something like that. Or I'm not against Ron DeSantis. So, huh? I check out that email and he's backpedaling like crazy. And I'm, I'm not against Ron DeSantis. I've heard from a lot of you. So apparently he's sending this email out to the people on Trump's email list, attacking DeSantis and get so much blowback. He's got to quickly follow it up with a backpedaling email. Again, this suggests to me Trump is not the huge hit. He can say anything. He can denounce anyone. Um, so I saw a poll on Twitter by 5:38 saying 77% of Republicans love Donald Trump, want him to run for president. They support Trump. And I didn't have time. So I just tweeted back at the time saying, uh, um... This does not comport with my with my experience, or as a liberal would say, this does not comport with my lived experience. Uh, but I didn't have time to look at it. A few weeks later, I look at the poll, and it's a really interesting poll. And by the way, five thirty-eight, great poll, sir. I would never say, "Oh no, this poll is just wrong." So I want to look at the poll. And what was interesting was you could break it down. The by downside graphics. of cartels um, is they produce lousy okay, products. So I at just women. How do they feel? The about women across the country. Garbage, um,
1: and you have to eat it because you have no choice. The upside of cartels is ultimately they're overthrown. Some scrappy upstart shows up with a better product and crushes them. We just saw that happen in late night comedy, which really since the end of the Johnny Carson era has been serving up increasingly mediocre fare until Greg Gutfeld showed up and completely overturned the table. And the numbers are in. For the month of August, Gutfeld, the show, ranked as the most watched late night program on all television. This is the first time that a cable show has beaten the broadcast shows. Gutfeld specifically unseated the thoroughly repulsive and completely unfunny Stephen Colbert. So we're not going to let this moment pass without celebrating. We are going to celebrate because you should and we want to. Greg Gutfeld is the man who just did this, who pulled it off. And we're happy to welcome him and congratulate him. So I, I didn't mean to suggest that it was easy to do this. It was very hard to do this. But, you know, three years ago, if somebody had said Greg Gutfeld is going to beat all three late-night broadcast shows, like, no—I mean, there was—possibility was zero. So how did you do this?
6: Well, you know what? I did it because of you, Tucker. I bet you don't even remember this conversation that we had. So get this. So remember when I called you? First, I said that I just talked to a well-known talk show host—I won't say the name—who discouraged me from doing this. Said, look, Greg, you got a good thing going. You got the five. You got one night a week on Saturday. You don't want—I mean, you don't want to kick it too hard—and I go, "Okay, okay." And I made it my—I wasn't going to do it. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to call you. And I—and before I even finished the sentence, I go. So I'm thinking about the show going nightly, and you just start laughing. <laughs> you did your Tucker laugh. And you, of course, you're going to do it. That's what you said. Of course, you're going to do it. <laughs> you have to do it. And you kept saying, "Why wouldn't you do it?" And you and I kept saying, I kept giving excuses. And you said, "No, no, 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 no. You're doing that." So it, and so I'd like it totally I go, yeah, why am I not doing this? And it's it's been yeah. such a it's been such a success that I was in L.A. for eight days just last week. You don't hear anything. You just get the stares. And I feel like I've broken a lot of people there because they've been personally humiliated by the fact that a Fox News program has has drank all of their milkshakes at once, all the networks, we crushed them. Then, then professionally, they have to worry because all of their bosses see that this little upstart show with a fraction of the cost, fraction of the staff, beat their underpants off. Now they're going to have to look at their budgets and go, do we really need to have this kind of catering? You know, it's like my writers sit at the desk and they eat their sandwich. They don't have catering, but everywhere else has catering. That's the problem. Catering, Tucker.
1: The lesson is you deserve craft services. You've <laughs> earned it. And these are people who are going to have to find something useful to do with their lives. And I just couldn't be more thrilled because a good guy won, bad people lost, and the market decided. It's like it's like the happiest thing that's happened in my life in a long time. Congratulations. I don't know. Well,
0: what- well on, a, on a sad note, it looks like uh, Colin Liddell and Andy Here Newqu- he comes, everybody. Very sad. Maybe not.
6: Andy Nowicki, father of the school shooter fiction, and Colin Liddell, father of the brutal, brutal criticism of his own circle, really, has come to an end, ladies and gentlemen. It is no more. Now, I know what you're asking who the fuck is Colin Liddell and Andy Nowicki?
0: Well, okay, we've got uh duvid uh duvid how are you today? can't hear you duvid maybe maybe the problem's on my end, so let's have a look at my my settings here uh huh I wonder what's going on okay um wonder why I can't hear it duvid uh okay. Okay, David, try it again. Hmm. Not hearing David. Okay, Duvid, I should be able to hear you now. Uh Duvid here, you test? Yep, 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 yep. I can hear you loud and clear. Uh so uh what's going on today? You you sent me an article about history.
4: Yeah, no, we like to talk a lot about history that was uh brett stevens op-ed in the new york times uh in the last few days and i looked at the article i guess from the historical association and i also read your blog post uh, you're quoting carl friston and active inference Uh, we've been talking about that on uh week in review and i've actually teamed up with them they have an active inference uh institute carl friston's been on their channel i was on their channel i didn't speak with carl friston but i interviewed uh, the man from uh daniels actually a jew from san francisco who got a phd studying ants uh that uh host their streams
0: but uh what did you want to say about the op-ed op by brett stevens this is the way that history ends
4: um i guess when i i said i'm a scientist and i'm not sure if that's what stevens was saying like history Has been turned political, and is connected to political motives. uh, Saying most people now study modern history, where they're studying recent history, and the recent history is important. uh, You know, for lessons for how we should run the world now, as opposed to uh, a more objective uh, understanding of what happened in history. I just thought it was mildly interesting because I like history, and I usually take a detached, uh, non-emotional, non-judgmental, like I'm not studying history to figure out who was the good or bad guys, who was right or wrong, but more just to understand and, you know, have some insights about uh, human nature, not even necessarily to figure out, uh, you know, what policy should be done. So I I thought that was, uh, um, you know, good insight uh, of, uh, you know, Stevens, although I don't really generally agree with Stevens political takes but you know an agreement that that's what happened and history's been turned political
0: and uh you also mentioned to me that you're looking forward to realizing how rich jews really are so what do you mean by that
4: um well i mean you said like what surprised me uh you know things that surprised me and and mm-hmm. uh i was many times surprised by just how wealthy jews actually are and like i grew up in a semi you know metro detroit rich jewish family my mother was uh you know partner at a major law firm ended up becoming a senior uh, equity partner uh you know now retired but uh, you know coming to israel and then especially new york uh you know to to uh witness and see the full extent of uh jewish wealth that you know it was continually surprising i'm not sure if you had similar things like that in la i mean you probably uh you know knew the knew the um, you know, the, the superstitions or, or the, you know, the thoughts that Jews are rich, but when you actually see it and, uh, you know, the full extent of it, it, it was, uh you, you know, like uh, shocking or striking.
0: Yeah. And uh, so when did you start to experience this when you lived in New York in your twenties?
4: Well, I started seeing it in Israel, like, Israel's not that rich, but I started seeing you know, I think you know, I mentioned Bertrand and like he came to Israel for Purim and you know he rented a cab for the whole day and he was handing out money the whole day. You know, just like twenty dollar bills. He gave me a hundred dollar bill and was just giving charity. And I also remember in Orsumaic, um I had you know friends that uh you know were were trading stocks and like you know, guy Kind of low key guy. Didn't seem like anything special. We were kind of friendly, and all of a sudden, like uh, we were on the, you know, that it was when the internet was first starting in the late '90s. So you had to use like, uh, you know, the, the uh computers. You know, th- at that point, uh, people didn't really have their like. I mean, there were laptops, but you couldn't have your own private internet connection. And uh, and he was showing me like he had like a hundred thousand dollars in stocks, and he was in his early twenties. And I had another friend in North America and he showed me like he had a hundred thousand dollars in stocks. And, uh, and then there were other people I met that were, you know, like wheeling and dealing, uh, business deals. And, uh, um, you know, so I started seeing that already in Israel and then, you know, certain Americans, like I, I was by, you know, if you've heard of Joseph Gutnick, the very wealthy, yes, from Australia, uh, I was in Jerusalem at the Tolsaver and Yitzchak Rebbe when he came to, uh, you know, there for Sabbath he came to the Tish and uh you know, I heard of Gutnik and and uh you know at that point he was maybe at his peak of wealth in the late nineties and uh you know it was in Jerusalem like the Rebbe's and Rosh Hashivas, but I'd never seen like uh you know more you know, respect or, or you know honor given than when I saw Joseph Gutnik came into the Tish and uh you know so I had in Israel like some notices of that but most of those people were from uh you know outside of israel and even the wealthy people in israel didn't seem all that wealthy um but it was more when i you know i went to new york and and uh, i had a friend from or and he lived in lawrence and uh you know i went to the yeshiva shar yoshev and he lived in a mansion and uh in you know like I, i i was in lawrence and cedarhurst and and they're almost exclusively Jewish neighborhoods. Some of them, uh, majority Orthodox, and and it's probably like like Hollywood. It's just like mansion after mansion, uh, uh miles and miles of uh, of all Jewish, of all Jews, and even this like collector from uh, Dushalmi collector. Like I drove him around, and he had like addresses in in because in I I wasn't from New York. I didn't know these people, and he's uh you know telling me where to go. And I'm pulling up to these like huge mansions and uh, mega millionaires. So like you you like it was. Uh, um, I mean I I could have expected it, but I'm saying when you actually see it, uh, you know for the first time, and and they're kind of like geeky Jewish guys. Like you pull up to the house and it's a mansion and it's like a geeky Jewish guy with a yarmulke. Uh, like I said when I went to the elite high school in Metro Detroit, like it was kind of a, uh, counter uh. Uh, you, you know, the the people didn't appear all that special. They were kind of your typical Jews, but uh, they were wealthy. And and then when I, I day traded, you know, also like, uh, you know, I was studying in, in Brooklyn um, and I got a call that uh, like this guy's hiring day traders. And like, you remember this guy from Yeshiva or Smack? He's like, yeah, I remember him. He didn't seem like anything special. i be like, no, no, he's making a lot of money day trading and he's hiring. He's willing to put money, uh, money, you know, behind you. And, you know, it was an office and it was basically all Jews. There was a minion, you know, like day trading and they're, you know, millionaires, young guys in their 20s. And we stopped in, uh, you know, Davin Minka and ordered uh, kosher food. And it was, you know, like guys I knew from Yeshiva that when they were in Yeshiva didn't appear like anything special.
0: Have you tried being friends with rich people? Because it's kind of hard keeping up if, if you're not rich too.
4: No, I never purposely befriended... Um, I was a driver and I worked for rabbis and rabbis mostly do fundraising. So I, I was, because I was good with English and I was like a Bolshuva, um a lot of people are scared to give you their context. Like if you're an Orthodox Jew and you have your donors, um, you know, they have to protect their donors. So I think there were a lot of people that specifically used me to uh drive to their donors they feel like what am i going to do if they, you know, like i'm not going to steal their donors i'm not collecting for anything and even you know some of these guys uh you know would just slip me like a 20 50 I, I, I never asked for charity but a lot of people were pretty charitable and they asked like oh who's this guy and I'm like oh we, you know he's a Balshuva, you know he's a half jew you know, like nebuchadnezzar you know like he wants to you know become from and his family's not from and that you know they'd slip me like 20 dollars. But but i think a lot of these collectors are have internal struggles among other orthodox collectors so they felt more safe using me and at a certain point i think i knew more rich people than most orthodox collectors and 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 it was an element of power i never specifically sought out wealthy people and i always said exactly what you said like knowing rich people doesn't help you make money um if you want to and if you want to make money you got to work hard and you know even day trading he wanted to make money off of me like the reason he brought me in and put money in front of me because he wanted to make money off of me uh you know, all the people that most of the people i met uh that were wealthy were because i was doing things for them i was working for them and uh or, or i was uh um helping out uh charity collectors i'm not sure if it's like that in la if you if you uh help out like rabbi charity collectors like that but i'm sure in la it's like that all the time i'm sure there's probably a 100 guys from brooklyn and israel every day landing in la making the rounds going to the houses and collecting for their charities and it's a guy like me or you i mean when i was younger like i haven't done that in decades but you know when i was younger it was a pretty cool thing to do i met a bunch of people uh and you know that's why i did like i didn't know who the people were Uh, they came into town and uh, i had a car i picked them up And uh, took them to the houses, and and sometimes you know, I just waited outside in the car. Some people were more nice, and you know, they'd uh, invite me into the house. Also, uh, I don't know if did you ever help out charity collectors
0: like that? No, it's not not my thing. Are you familiar Uh, with the phenomenon, though? Yeah, yeah, I just find it distasteful. But I
4: mean, it's Jewish culture, so I'm sure even if you go to an elite synagogue, that most of your even modern Orthodox. It's a normal thing that there'll constantly be a flow of charity collectors from New York and Brooklyn, yeah. and they'll they'll write checks. In fact, in Brooklyn, I'm not sure if it's like that in L.A. Um, basically, all rich people have hours, and uh, they might you know if you're really into it, you might have hours every night, or just uh, a few a week. And uh, but but uh, you know New York, uh, even when I lived in Lawrence, you couldn't stop them. They came door to door. I lived in Lawrence for a while. And every day we had, char- you know, like Hasidic uh, Israeli charity collectors that would just knock on our door. I'm not sure if it's like that in LA, too. Yeah. It, yeah. Like, even in Detroit, if you have a mezuzah, annoying. yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you're not, you, I mean, it, it's our culture. So you're saying, like, that's like a Goyish way of looking at it.
0: No, plenty of Jews find it highly annoying, too. Well,
4: I mean, because they're assimilated into Goyish culture.
0: No, because any normal person doesn't like being knocked on the, on the, having the, people knocking on their door asking for money. Uh,
4: I mean that's our culture saying like it it's ascribed that that's how you're supposed to behave and uh you know there's severe superstition. So among Hasidim and Haredi who are more superstitious, uh you're not supposed to turn people away empty handed. So if you're you know within the more Hasidic haredi confines um You basically never turn anyone away empty-handed. I never turn away someone empty-handed. Like, if someone gets to me, I'll give them like a quarter or a dollar because I'm superstitious like that. And I've heard the stories, uh, you know, say like you really shouldn't turn someone away. And we've debated this before in the past. We don't have to go into it, but but, I mean, New uh, York—it's almost reputational where you could have a bad reputation for turning away charity collectors, maybe in LA, um, you know, it's more further removed and you, you're not going to get shunned from synagogue because a charity collector, uh, but when you, you know, when you go to synagogue, the charity collectors are there, especially like the, you know, the of the important ones. So, you know, if you go to, you know, the big synagogue, uh, the charity collectors a lot of times are up front with the rabbis and, you know, they'll give you a dirty look like, Oh, that man goes to your shul. I was at his house and he didn't give me anything and like, you'll be shunned by your peers. So maybe in LA, like it's not that much of a Haredi culture like that, but in you know very Haredi places, uh, the charity collectors could negative negatively influence your standing in synagogue by like publicly, you know, like uh, giving you the evil eye that you didn't give them.
0: Yeah. Uh, the Clip Bentley says in the chat, the next day and Frank will be black silently twerking in the, in the attic. So, when when you experience wealth, when when you see wealth and how awesome it can be to to be wealthy, for example, most of life's problems can be solved with money. Does it ever cause you to reassess your your life choices? Because that certainly occurred to me when when I see people who I don't think are any more intelligent than than me, you know, earning two, three, four, five, six, ten times as much money as me. Sometimes it makes me, you know, reassess my my life choices and think, oh, maybe I should uh, d- do some things differently because it'd be really awesome to be wealthy. How about you? Do you do you experience any introspection?
4: Yeah, and I, I saw this when I was already like twenty. In fact, it was you know friends of mine from yeshiva knew how much of a struggle it would be for me to stay uh, religious. You know, being like a half Jew, being from you know even a few miles away from whatever Orthodox community there is in, in Metro Detroit, uh, that they, you know, purposely introduced me to a bunch of wealthy people and told me like, you know, I want you to stay from, I want you to see this. And, uh, you know, certain problems go away, but like, you know, human nature is still human nature. People suffer. And and just like saying, when I was in yeshiva, a lot of the wealthy people didn't stand out. Like a lot of them were, were even, uh, you know, kind of like, even in yeshiva standards, kind of like, you know, geeky, not popular. And I thought, like, I was kind of, you know, nice to everybody. Um, and, you know, later found out that some of them were uh, very wealthy. But, yeah, money is powerful and certainly beneficial. It was probably part of what kept me from knowing that, like, uh, you know, like the five towns, like, you know, like uh, you know, the first place I went in, in New York, you know, like I was in Shar yashuv Yeshiva and I saw that. You know that that uh, you know saying like oh Orthodox Judaism here in Metro Detroit, most Orthodox Jews are the poor of the Jews, or even in Brooklyn. I, I you know I had actually a choice to go to the five towns, and I preferred you know Brooklyn. I wanted to be Hasidic, but uh, you know having seen it, you know to know that Orthodox Jews aren't a joke. Like there's a uh, you know whole neighborhoods of tens of thousands of Orthodox Jews. Uh, they're all you know basically living in multi million dollar estates. So that was something like I didn't know, like, uh, you know, no one ever told me that Lawrence, Cedarhurst, Teaneck, um, you know, certain nice neighborhoods in Muncie. You know, maybe you were like people have heard of Hollywood and you may, you know, people are like, oh, Hollywood is Jewish. But, uh, you know, when you actually get to Hollywood and you see these huge synagogues and you see Orthodox Jews there, um, you know, it, uh, it it gives you a little chizik for the struggle of maintaining being an Orthodox Jew, is saying like th- there is something to it.
0: So, uh, wanted to talk for talk for a few minutes about uh, dealing with with difficult people. So that that can be quite a challenge. And life in Orthodox Judaism is much more intense, uh, communal oriented, and uh, you can't really you know be an Orthodox Jew and, and be a loner. I mean, it's a heavily heavily communal. Uh, activity so i I', I all
4: you your problems, you know like basically everyone if something happens or there's some embarrassing thing, basically everyone knows about it,
0: yeah, so I remember there was this this one guy who was like always humiliating me in front of attractive women, he would you know tell them about you know aspects of my racy past, and uh, I kind of resented it. And so I, I told my therapist, look, I've got two choices. You know, one is I can just completely shun this guy never speak to him again, you know, walk away whenever we're in the same place socially. Or two, I can give him a piece of my mind, you know, and let him know that, uh, you know, he just can't get away with humiliating me. And uh, my therapist had a great response. He, he said, why do you need to do anything? And it was so true. I I didn't do anything. And he became an important friend in my life and facilitated you know, a lot of important things in my life. And I only got that because I was able to follow my, my therapist's advice and that was to have no reaction. Now, I certainly don't endorse that for, for most difficult people, but certainly for some difficult people, I have found that I am best off simply having n- no reaction. Then for other difficult people, I'm better off, Distancing myself as much as possible. Uh, then, for other difficult people, I've you know talked to other people to get get a perspective on how to most effectively you know interact uh, w- with someone who's uh, particularly challenging. But uh, what are, what are your experiences, particularly within the Orthodox Jewish community, with someone who is so annoying that you least lose sleep at night? So it's not completely uncommon that, that I'll encounter someone who's just so annoying that I, I, I stop, I stop sleeping. You know, I just toss and turn much of the night, just trying to figure out how to, how to deal with someone. So what has been your approach with, with difficult people? Maybe you can choose like one or two examples and talk about different approaches, things that have worked or not worked for you.
4: Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, like I said, like, you know, Jews are communal people and you gather in synagogue or yeshiva. There's always a bunch of people around. And so there's going to be an element of people that will anything, you know, are going to fill in the people with, you know, say the lush or the bad stuff about you and however much bad stuff is there about you. Like you could feel that like, Oh man, like here's this guy. And I mean, cause a lot of times like, Social stuff. Your know, synagogue and yeshiva is a lot of schmoozing and socializing, even to praying. Uh, but you know, like you're there to learn. You're there to uh, to pray. But I mean, the reality is, most you know happenings in synagogue and yeshiva is socializing. Um, but within the socializing, you're gonna like. There's a certain element uh, of people that whatever they don't really like you, and they're constantly. Uh, filling people in about the bad things about you. And uh you know, so there was always those elements, uh, you know, basically everywhere I went, and uh they kind of come become part of your entourage. So I took a more mystical approach to uh to that, which you know, like Perky Alvo says, whenever you do a good deed, you create a good angel, and whenever you do a bad deed you create a bad angel, and that takes the form of your friends and your enemies. So I didn't look at them as my enemy, I looked at my bad deeds as my enemy, that there's the reason there's someone there saying bad things about me is because there's bad things about me to be said. And it just happens to be that this person is, you know, the deliverer of, uh, of this message and to keep me humble, you know, cause sometimes, uh, you know, like, you know, if you're a ball dare, or Gare and you have knowledge of the outside world, and you're around a bunch of people who have you know, almost no knowledge of the outside world. Like I say, even like in Brooklyn, just driving, you know, like you're the only guy with a car, the only guy with a driver's license. Um, you could get like, you know, a little like a fan club going uh, just because people want to know what's going on in the outside. And then you're going to have like the detractors, uh, you know, they like stay away from this guy. And uh, you know, there were always every synagogue I was at people that didn't want me there voice that they didn't want me there. Um, anytime I made a friend, you know, would, would just wait for the chance to warn them of every bad thing they ever heard about me. And uh, I took it as a good thing, you know, because like from a spiritual perspective, like, uh, you know, because I studied Musser and a lot of Jews have these, you know, difficult personalities like that uh, of, of like, you know, I'm doing you a favor, uh, you know, by... Treating you so toughly, especially like you know, if you're a balchuve or a convert, you know, saying like like you know, like they're trying, you're like uh, you're like uh, the comment says, good wheat gets hit hard, and you know, saying like you know, I'm not gonna give you this fake uh, you know convert baltruva love, and uh, you know, show you the ropes, and saying what you're doing is not cutting it, you know, like even though you think it's okay to do the stuff, it's not, and uh, you, you know, so I. I, I internally tried to look at it as a, you know, like a spiritual message.
0: And, and how effective was that? I mean, how, how often do you lose sleep over difficult people? Not
4: often. Cause I, I look at it as a reflection of my faults. So I don't look at it as the difficult person is the problem. I look at it as my own faults are the problem and the reason that there's difficult people is because of, uh, you know, either sins that I've committed or. You know, bad character that I haven't uh, refined and we'll look at it as a. Uh, incentive, you know, saying, like, yeah, it'd be nice if I, you know, I went to synagogue and I was popular and everybody liked me and everything went my way. And it's not because this difficult person standing in my way, it's because, uh, you know, I'm not ready for it. Or, uh, you know, I have, uh, and so this person is just the, the form, uh, you know, the physical form of that message. So in that point, like I might lose sleep over it, but I'm not necessarily losing sleep over the difficult person. I'm losing sleep over, uh, you know, my, uh, my shortcomings.
0: And, and what's your tolerance level like for uh, other people? I mean, do you like there are certain, you know, limits of discomfort where I I simply, you know, dramatically reduce contact w- with people. So how how tolerant are you of difficult people? Generally speaking, I want to feel good about my interactions with the people in my life. And so if people consistently make me feel bad, then I cut way back on my interacting with them. So how tolerant are you?
4: I'm pretty tolerant. I mean, like now I'm kind of a loner, but like even streaming, like I don't have anybody banned um, you know, like I'm still talking with my detractors, like even like my internet trolls, like uh you like I'm still talking with them. In New York, uh, you're like, you know, I drove and a lot of times like people would pile into my car and it'd be my detractor. You know, like all of a sudden, you know, like uh you know, the the community's going to this place and you know, people are looking for rides and there's my detractor and he needs a ride. And uh, you know, so I'd even uh you know, like, you know, I had an apartment and, uh, you know, like, because I, anyone I would come and work out and, uh, you know, even like watch TV in my apartment, I would even let my detractors come. And, uh, you know, when I had more money, uh, you know, I, even if my detractors asked me for money, I'd uh, give them money because I, I looked at it as a spiritual message. Like I saying, like, you know, kind of like, you know what, you're right. <laughs> you know, like, and, and you know, some, uh, you know, Jews chess players a lot also, but, uh, you know, Jews, uh, could have these self deprecating senses of humor. So, uh, you know, can even use the, use those people and be like, you know what, you're right. Uh, or, or you'd be like, you really want to know about duvid, you know, ask this guy, you are know, like my, my detractor. So like in Brooklyn, you have a lot of, uh, tough personalities and, uh, you know, I, that's one of the, also the realizations I, I realized is that, uh, um, I re- realized that first when I was serving um, other prominent people in the community, and then there'd be people that would say really bad things about them. You know, like people like, oh, man, like this guy's awesome. And then all of a sudden people would come and tell me, uh, you know, these horrible things about this person. It's like, you know, I try to defend them. So that was also a realization that I realized, like, you could never be universally popular. And even, you know, these very respected people. You know, like Luke and the rabbis, like, you know, like I was a rabbi worshiper, and here Luke Ford is saying, you know, the unsayable, he's saying bad things about the rabbi. How's that possible? I have to stop him. But, the, you know, I saw that early that everybody has their detractors. And then I saw that really you can't stop your detractors from being in your entourage. And like party promoting works that way too. Like, uh, you know, the best way to promote your own party is to go to your rival's party and to hand out flyers and invite them to your party at your rival's party. And uh, you can't really stop that from happening. So at some point, uh, I think I just embraced it. And you come to, you know, come up with strategies and uh, techniques to, uh, you know, so to say work, you know, like your frenemies that, uh, you know, if you have a group, if you're if you're around a group of more than a few people, quite a few of them are going to be frenemies, your detractors, Quite And also having rises and falls. You know, there's a lot of people that are just waiting for you to fall so that they could, uh, you know, start start banging on you and saying how they knew you were always bad and just waiting for bad things to happen to you. So, uh, um, I mean, I assume it's like that in Hollywood. It has to be like that, where you have an entourage and you can't really, you know, kick people out of your entourage. And a lot of times you have to allow your detractors in your frenemies into your entourage, so I kind of picked up on that quickly. Okay,
0: you. okay. Let me get uh, Mr. Anecdote, uh, Elliot Blatt, into the conversation. Elliot, any anecdotes for us today?
3: I have many, but I don't want to interrupt the flow, bro.
0: No, no, interrupt away, bro. You can anecdote all over us. in know i <laughs> and, in and Elliot, a week in review, we can
4: review. Have a few times talked about this. You know, said like moving from Detroit to like more suburban, is you know, saying in New York, you couldn't avoid your detractors and bad personalities, like especially in big synagogues or in Brooklyn, like they catch you on the street right when you go into synagogue, they're on you and you have to come up with some sort of uh, strategy, kind of like paying them off or or just, uh, I mean, me and Elliot have discussed this a few times.
0: Uh, Elliot, have, has this dream awake, awoken the gerbil within? <laughs> yes, yes. It's crawling. It's crawling, bro. It, it wants to be terrible. free, bro, but you need to stop clenching and let the gerbil be free. I know, bro. It's
3: my upbringing, bro. I'm so tense.
0: You're so tense, I, man. You need Alexander technique. I got to, to I gotta let
3: go, bro. I got to let gotta go. You got to
0: free up, bro. You're such a tight ass, man. A tight that, that ass, New Englander.
3: You know, I, I've got these weird conservative mores. It's just terrible.
0: Oh, man. Oh. Uh,
3: well, so I've been trying to call in. I just gotta let you know. This is a big parenthetical, but there's been several times when I wanted to call in, and then I look, and there's no invite link. And then later on, I look, and then there is an invite link. So I don't know when you send your invite links, but I haven't been uh, spurning you uh, by uh, intentionally. I that's just...
0: such a Menchie. That's such a Menchie thing. Because I was kind of wondering, like, Elliot hasn't called in in two months. Is you know maybe I was inconsiderate. Perhaps yeah. I was well, not sufficiently sensitive to his feelings and his needs the last time. No, no, no.
3: Well, yesterday I was tempted to call in, but Dubin and, and Rodney were on, and you guys were in a groove. And my what I had to say was completely.
0: Uh, you didn't want to reduce worse. the IQ level of the conversation,
3: exactly, bro. I expected the IQ. You guys were bringing the high IQ. I didn't want to go in and sort of bring it to the basement.
0: So, I
3: figured I would just choose a better opportunity and wait. You know, I pick my spot. But and- I have, I had. I had something to say about yesterday's stream, but Okay, I go ahead.
0: Tell, tell us about it. Okay, uh, so, so,
3: yesterday, yesterday, you and Rodney and David were talking about uh, what to put on your headstone, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about that. What would be a good thing for me to head? And I had like 10 possibilities. Well, more like five or six, but uh, it was a really good, thought-provoking question. So, I, I did have come up with some candidates. Okay. Can I run them by you? Please, please. Okay. All right, one. Hitler did nothing wrong.
0: Oh, God. God forbid. God forbid. No,
3: it's crass, right? That's It's 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 a little
0: too edgy for for 2022. I mean, 2015, that would have been funny.
3: Okay, how about this one? I'm so mad right now.
0: (laughs) That's a good one. I like that one. I'm so mad right now. (laughs) no.
3: the, the question was, I spent about an hour thinking about this, but I was debating between, I'm so mad right now, or, I'm so mad right now, period, or, I'm so mad right now, exclamation point. Now, I don't think I've ever seen an exclamation point on a headstone. That's what true. Are your thoughts on the-
0: That's true. I don't think I've ever seen an exclamation point either on a headstone yeah but there's this wall but, of silence about it like people are <laughs> afraid to talk about why there are no exclamation points on the head head whatever what are the headstones it's it's just a wall of silence have you noticed that
3: i have i have that's why i felt like well maybe this is inappropriate <laughs> you know
4: <laughs>
0: no no too- i i think it's it's a it's a, an idea as time has come yeah i mean it's, um, exclamation points are very sexy
3: yeah, but they just seem to be um you know, not within the spirit. It's like, you know, it's just just discordant with the the mood of a of a headstone, you know. Yeah. But then I thought of a more positive one, which okay. is which is I'm coming back here to destroy this town.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. A thousand effing times if I have to.
3: <laughs> yeah. So like <laughs> What kind of message would that send? You know, if I were to do
0: that, I, I, I think it could be powerful. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: So it, it was really a wrenching question. I was in deep, deep contemplation about about this.
0: I, I see. So it prompted a, a lot of introspection.
3: Yeah, yeah. Deep, powerful spiritual introspection, and that's what you expect from me, and that's what I tend to deliver. Um. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, a lot's been going on, but. You know, I've been attempted to call in many, many times, but it seems like every time I do, you've already somebody's beat me to the punch. And you know what they're talking about is so deep and profound and moving, and my yeah. stuff is just
0: anecdotal. You know,
3: tab you know tabloid anecdotes. You know why? Why do I need to sully Luke's dream with my stupid stories? You know,
0: so. But- I mean, often when I'm dealing with a difficult person, I, I think to myself, how would Elliot Blatt handle this? So, yeah, it's, it's a
3: good question to ask, yeah.
0: Yeah, How uh, could you give me like an example? I, I don't want theory, all right? With you, I know I can get anecdote. So, Can you give me an anecdote about how you've dealt with a difficult person? It can be a failure, a success, or somewhere in between. I'd I just love to hear a story about you and a difficult person. A hard man. How, how do you deal with like a hard man?
3: Um, mm, well, that's quite a question, you know, out of the blue like that. Um, but generally speaking, I, I know people's temperaments, right? And, you know, this is through age and experience that you understand what certain temperaments like and don't like. Yeah. Which buttons to push and not to push.
0: Yeah. You know,
3: <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know. Uh, and so I often find this certain angle where I know that, um, it's not going to ruffle any feathers and I'm sort of, you know, there's often a very subtle joke embedded in what I'm saying and dealing with a, with a, with a difficult personality. And I think they, they can actually, most times they can actually perceive this and appreciate this, you know, I'm good at subtly winning friends, you know? and influencing people, but more, you know, I've learned how different people operate and different personality types uh, get through the world and what they like and don't like. And I know not to go where they don't like because it would be ultimately unproductive. So I don't know how, you know, you can't really articulate these rules. These are just things that you sort of glean through experience over time. We were talking about dealing with people in a
4: group Go ahead do it. I mean, you know, if you're like Orthodox Judaism, it's rarely like one-on-one personalism. Maybe like late at night or a roommate, but there's almost always a whole bunch of people around, and uh, you. Know, so you're dealing with people in a group, or people have large families, congregations, and you. Know, if you're in the big city, people have a lot of friends. So you know, like if you have, uh, you know, even a girlfriend. And she's got you know tens of friends. Some of them aren't going to like you, so there the, you know there's a difference between one on one, of okay like you know me and Luke uh, in, in personal difficulties, versus saying, dealing with people in public, where there's large amounts of people around, or entourages where if you're you're dealing with more successful, more popular people, they always have people around them, and sometimes it's like money. If you have a really rich friend and or, or a powerful friend they have a lot of people, you know, people wanting things from them. And there could be, uh, you know, competition, uh, you know, beautiful women. uh, and, and so I'm not sure if you're referring to one-on-one in the business place or just the reality of public situations where you can't really stop the fact that there's going to be uh, difficulties with many people. Uh,
0: go ahead, Elliot.
3: Okay, well, it's a good point, juve, So I was thinking about this today, like, there's been circumstances when I've been sort of in the room with a lot of, with, with, not a lot, but with like a very wealthy person, like right? a very powerful person, a very, you know, high prestige person. And, you know, it was my impulse to sort of ingratiate myself with them. Right.
0: And... Yeah. Like when you come on this show.
3: Exactly. Exactly, Luke. I didn't want to say it, but you got to kick Elliot,
0: Luke. I'm sorry,
4: <laughs> Luke, but like Elliot is not up to par. It should be all focused on me. And so my goal is to convince you to drop Elliot. I'm sorry. Right. Well, hold on. But but like when I would try and do this, right, I
3: would sort of suddenly try to make myself the center of the conversation or like shift the conversation to me, you know, to try and become the focal point of of the interaction. And then I would quickly learn that my attempts weren't working. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I've I've often tried that too. I, I'm just curious, like what was the average length of time that you could direct, uh, uh, nudge the conversation to focus on you? Like how long would it last? Would, would it last a minute, five minutes, 50 minutes? Oh, less
3: than a minute. Less than a minute. Less than a minute.
0: There'd be just this
3: weird, awkward silence, right? And there'd be lots of sideways glancing going on among the others. And then I would just, quietly understand that my attempt had failed that I would just sort of shrink back into the woodwork <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's the worst feeling like when i try to insert myself into other people's conversation and yeah. they just ignore me i mean that's, yeah. that's just like the worst that's like having sex with a girlfriend who doesn't want to have sex but she's just yeah. going to let you get your rocks off because she doesn't want to she's tired of saying no to you and so, yeah. I, I mean, it's only happened to me once. She, she said, like, okay, you can do it, but I'm not into it. Yeah. And, and and we did it. It was just, like, the worst. It was, like, such an awful feeling. And she said afterwards, so, you know, we shouldn't do this too much because it'll you know, have, have negative consequences for our relationship. But uh, it's the worst feeling when you try to join a conversation where you're not wanted. I hate that.
3: Exactly, exactly, bro. Uh, you know, like, and I was just thinking about this, like, you know, I was thinking about like all of the like rich people I've known, people that have been rich for a long time, you know, they just have this certain um they sort of pick up a sixth sense, you know. They have this certain ease and they know who's in the club
4: and who's not in the club. Right? The advantage of being rich or famous is you have an entourage. So if you're you know, we're just like me, Luke, or Elliot, we don't have an entourage. And, you know, so you're trying to get in with a powerful person, like, well, I want to be their top friend. But the reality is, is they purposely have an entourage. And, you know, so there's beef within the entourage. And so that's why I'm saying there's dynamics about it. And a lot of things you can't do anything about it because there's a struggle for other people in the entourage that was saying, well, my position would be better if I could get you out. And, you know, streaming is like that. I'm sure Hollywood is definitely like that. And, you know, the topic of the last few nights, God forbid, you know, is, you know, ca- the cock blocking. And, you know, certainly if your goal is to have uh, promiscu- promiscuity, uh, the large strategy is uh, you know, evading cock blockers, God forbid.
0: Elliot, you know about cock blocking? Oh,
3: yeah, bro. It's my middle name, bro.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so.
0: Um. So Elliot, oh. like, 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 let, let's take like uh, at, at work. Let's say you need the money. You might need need a, the gig or, or a job or a contract, and it it demands that you successfully interact with a very difficult person with a foreign accent who mm. wants to put you know much of the onus on you as possible and all the blame on you if things don't go well. Like what are your strategies for dealing with such a situation
3: uh well, it's a very keen uh very perceptive question you ask luke um uh, is, is there's no blueprint you need to you uh, you need to understand the hierarchy you're in, your place in it. The extent to which you are replaceable, to the extent to which you are not replaceable, and then you need to sort of calibrate your reactions Yes. accordingly.
0: Yes, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, do, so, do you do you do you lose sleep? I mean, I I lose sleep over difficult people who I can't get rid of.
3: Um. I well, you know, a year ago, Luke. I would have said it this would have been a problem of mine, but it, I, I must say that till very recently uh, it's no longer a problem. I mean, I've, I've sort of, I've experienced, since my sort of floating uh, uh, adventures had begun mm-hmm. three months ago, I, I've really experienced some real like positive changes, uh, subtle, but um, uh, real nonetheless. And I, I think, um, I'm sort of over the hump that I've been struggling to get over for, for the past, for the previous two to three years. So I'm feeling good. Luke. That's why I haven't called in because when I call in, <laughs> I've been expecting, like, you know, I, I have all of these bubbly stories, these anecdotes of mirth and levity, and they just don't seem to be appropriate with the, uh, the, 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 the guests currently on the panel so I just feel like well I'll wait and I'll just choose a better time to call in. So when was the last time
0: you were in an isolation tank Elliot? Um, uh,
3: August 3rd if you need to know the exact date. Okay
0: so Uh, a month later you're still experiencing good... good. uh... Well here's the thing Luke yes you know I
3: permit this adulterate, but I, I I came to the realization you know I finally came to the realization that uh I needed to stop waiting for things. And I needed to take the initiative. Right. Yeah. So, and so I said, so I extended that and I said, well, if you're going to take the initiative, how are you going to take the initiative? You know, you need, you need a concrete plan. It's one thing to like, say, I'm going to take some action, but you need a specific course of action. And then, you know, I said, well, you know what, I'm going to take a week in figuring out like, what is the correct course of action to take? And I, you know, I think I've alighted on that. And, um, and like I said, well, you know, it's going to take a long time, but just be content with small gains. So that's been the lesson of these past three months, Loke, is to be content with small gains, but nevertheless, always move forward.
0: Have you had people in your life without prompting, uh, notice that you're happier? Um. Yeah. Oh well. You mean recently? In the last month.
3: Um,
0: last two months. Last three months. Last. I two think years. so. Yes.
4: Yes.
3: I think so. I think so. Um. Uh. Yes. In subtle ways. Yes.
0: In subtle ways, they've let you know that they've noticed that you're happier.
3: Well, yeah. Believe it or not, Luke. People at work think that I'm very relaxed. We're like <laughs> <laughs> <We're just> like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, people would like say man you're just so relaxed it's like are you serious like i'm a fucking bubbling inferno <laughs> but i'll take it because most people luke i've learned aren't relaxed most people are everybody in this modern society is completely uh amped out to such a radical degree that, uh, you know, um, they themselves aren't any more relaxed than you are. So, you know, it was sort of an insight, you know, that, um, I don't know.
0: People are doing the best
3: that they can within the context they're in. You know, the situation is the boss. Luke. That's
0: good. That's really good. You should put that on your tombstone. The situation (laughs) is the boss. (laughs) i do that you were saying something a couple of minutes ago when i overrode you yeah i wanted
4: to delve into this deeper and you know the dealing with difficult people and having an entourage and saying like you know because we've we've probably had various phases in our life where it's been higher or lower better or worse uh you know saying like okay i made myself useful like what are you doing here and it's like well i'm the driver like like i'm i'm doing a menial task like uh I know my place, like I'm not, uh, you know, like a prominent member, but, uh, you know, I'm not worried that they're about to throw me out because I know I'm doing a useful function. Uh, But uh, also points of prominence like uh, party promoting, uh, you know, even periods where I like backstage passage or, uh, you know, special access to uh, rich people or, you know, even minorly famous people. And it's a source of power, just like streaming you know, if you have, uh, leaving people hanging feels good. Like if, like, you know, if, if you are a, a beautiful woman and you have tens of guys who want to date you, it probably feels good. And you might purposely leave a lot of them hanging on. And even if you're going to go for like, uh, you know, the rich geeky millionaire, um, it feels good that like the buff jock also wants to, uh, date you. And, you know, if you're in a prominent position in Hollywood, you probably have a big entourage of all sorts of people that do different things for you and all have some level of use while you're keeping uh, keeping them around. And, you know, just on your streams, like you dropped me that time to talk to Brundle because there were so many people that wanted to talk to you that uh, you could leave me hanging. And, uh, you know, so it feels good to be in that position where there's a whole bunch of people that want what you have and you could leave them hanging. And, uh, you know, so the nature of difficult people Is both of you are kind of mirror products of each other. You're saying, do you really have difficult people on your own? Unlikely. You have difficult people in social circumstances, and both of you are kind of trying to edge each other out. And so the difficulty is uh, mutual. Are you saying you have people that are, you know, like, no, they're obsessed with you and they're after you. uh, But, but uh, you know, no, I mean, it's more both jockeying for position in social context. Where there's you know a bigger fit a bigger uh person up there that's leaving both of you hanging keeping you around and both of you kind of want to get rid of the other person so i mean i think that dynamic and you know just from your streaming you've probably been uh you know ups and lows where where you're just like, like please don't reject me uh you know please let me do something useful for i like, could be a part and maybe you've had higher points where you had a bunch of people hanging on and you could just kind of you know trash people and Eva, you're going to come back, to me, even though I treat you like trash, because it feels good to have power like that.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's true. And uh, I mean, I was wondering where Elliot went the last few weeks and he just keeps me hanging on. I mean, set me free. Why don't you, babe? Get out of my life. Why don't you, babe? Because you don't really love you. Love me. You just keep me hanging on. Set me well, free. Why don't you, babe? Why do you well, keep well, coming well, around playing with my heart? Why don't you get out of my life? Let me make a brand new start. Let me What's get over means? you. The way you've gotten over me. Set me free. It was written by
4: Vanilla Fudge, but that's a Detroit uh, Motown Supreme song.
0: You say you still care for me, but your heart and soul need to be free. Now that you've got your freedom, you want to still hold on to me. You don't want me for yourself, so let me find somebody else. Set me free, why don't you, babe? Get out of my life, why don't you, babe? Ooh, 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 because you don't really love me. You just keep me hanging on. So why don't you be a man about it? And set me free.
3: Luke, all I had, okay. For, I don't know, I maybe I changed the setting on the phone, but in the old days, I used to get like this alert on my phone if the invite had come in, you know, where, and where any email had come in. And then, you know, I didn't get the alert. So I figured, well, you know, Luke is doing a solo stream. That's fine. So then, but then later on, I'd look in my email and there it was. So somehow I've made some accidental setting where, I haven't received the invite, but at the same time, I'm also very judicious about when or when not to accept the invite. If I feel like, like for a week or so, you had this guy with the headphones and the, in the truck and like the, the porn guy, you know, like I didn't want to call in and sort of, I respected the conversation that was unfolding and I just said, well, I'll just wait for a better time. You know? So I, there was nothing personal intended by that. It was just like, I know when there's an opportune moment and I know when there's not. And when there is an opportune moment, I'll I'll seize upon it. But I you know, my life develops in weeks over weeks. So I don't have like these anecdotes don't just grow on trees, Luke. They yeah. have they have to be they nurtured, have like nurtured g- over time, gerbil. like two or three weeks. <laughs> like a gerbil Luke. So but a lot's been unfolding, bro, I gotta say, like like I'm on a real positive upswing. And like yesterday, the, t- the show was incredibly, I, I don't want to say dour, but there was a certain serious borderline morose tone to the t- show yesterday, and I didn't feel like my sort of chirpy uh, uh, contributions would have been welcome.
0: Chirpy, you know, that's the first word that people use about you. Whenever I mention your name, people always say, Elliot Blatt, he's so chirpy. <laughs> He's a chirper. He's a, like a little bird He's like, He's like a, a little blue bird. He's a chirping <laughs> jebel, <jubble. laughs>
3: Well, I don't know, bro. What do you think about this discretion I'm showing? Do you think this is like... Um, I mean, it would have been weird for me to call in yesterday with like you, with Rodney and David on the and then me to just show up at a left field and start jabbering <laughs> about my nonsense.
0: No, yeah. no, I think you. Yeah, I think you're, you're you're choosing your moments absolutely uh correctly i i actually wasn't uh, worried or concerned or, or feeling rejected i just i know that you're that you always choose your moments you don't just like uh you know yeah, splatter it all over. I, yeah
3: i'm no duvid i'm no duvid but i'm a i'm a chess player myself and i i know when the moment is right and i well, seize upon it
0: duvid plays chess you play checkers <laughs> that's,
3: that's true that's true,
0: that's true. Well, what about
4: a uh, bad cup i mean you think like I mean, you know, now that you're rising up there in the ranks, when you have the power, you use difficult people to play the bad cop. Because, like I want to be the nice guy always. And so if you want to force someone out, you use someone else in your entourage to uh, you know, play the bad cop. And I remember I used to, uh, you know, day trade. My boss was basically always nice to me. And, you know, there was another guy that occasionally would be in the office and he would just yell at me and like, but I knew it was my boss talking through him. And he had this other Israeli guy that like just looked at me and he's like, you give me the word, I will beat the hell out of Duvid and be my pleasure. But my boss was always extremely nice to me and he would use other people in the entourage as the bad cop. And I think that's a typical strategy, you know what I'm saying? Like the women in the you know the cock blockers but uh you are saying if you're in a position of power uh you have to come up with a strategy because power necessitates having a group of people under you and uh you're having other people play the bad cop role and that's kind of why i said my thought of seeing difficult people as my own uh self-deficiency
0: uh rodney martin has joined the show rodney what's going on
7: oh i figured it was time for the bad cop to show up yeah
0: was it? Was there anything that you heard that you wanted to respond to, Rodney?
7: No, I uh, I had the same situation that Elliot. is. I used to get the notifications right away, and I get them now. I mean, the only way I get them, I still get notifications, but they just pop up when I get a new email, uh, not necessarily a you know the actual notification. So, uh, like Elliot, I probably clicked on something and shut them off. But I I tend these days to you know watch my email notifications a little more diligently than
0: I used to. Uh, Elliot, were you about to say something that would forever change my life?
3: Uh, yes, but uh, okay. So I was, I was thinking about, you know, you know, the expression heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yes. Like being the King. Yes. You know, being the King automatically means that, that you have sort of internal enemies that want to knock you off and take your crown. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I, I was once in a situation that's sort of like that when I worked at a real estate office where, um, the, the owner of the shop, he was like the most paranoid, disgusting person you've ever met, you know? And, and he sort of ruled through fear and intimidation and it was just such an unpleasant place to be. But at the same time, this fear and intimidation <coughs> created a sort of certain sense of order, um, and it sort of it it put in perspective, like you have the sort of Saddam Husseins of the world, the the dictators of these third world countries, and why they behave the way they do. It's sort of it's an inherent characteristic that needs to be in those situations.
0: Uh, Rodney, do you, do you have any anecdotes of uh, a difficult person in your life and? and how you either resolved it, or failed, or, or conquered, uh, or ran right oh, away. Oh, sure. Yeah.
7: My, uh, my uh, mother-in-law, a very difficult person, but I decided to take the high road, and I sent her a 10-pound box of chocolates. Uh, she's a diabetic, by the way.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well played. Uh,
7: you know, uh, what Elliot said about the Saddam Husseins and such, uh, it's interesting that for nearly 30 years Saddam Hussein kept Iraq you know uh, in line it was emerging into a first world before the first Gulf War it was emerging in the first world it was driving the initial discussion about not using the dollar for the reserve for the oil you know for trading of oil and then he got knocked off and we brought democracy and western values to Iraq same as with Libya and look at the situation I mean you have you know countries that are tribal in nature uh, they're not uh a heterogeneous and you know take something like that and yet stupid westerners uh, you know they keep rebranding this democracy thing and if this was a if this was a product in retail in the commercial world it would long be discredited and nobody would be buying it but uh, talking about uh, fear and intimidation I mean that's isn't that how we live now even in the you know Reagan's shining city on the hill uh, fear and intimidation uh, as soon as uh, Biden hires 85,000 new IRS agents, people are up in arms and are scared, and rightfully so. People are more afraid if a cop is following you than if uh, you're walking through a parade of gangbangers. Uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, the dynamic that we uh, uh, that we that we live in, and you know, the same goes for for Russia as well. You know, Putin has adopted this thing called managed democracy. And it probably wouldn't be a bad thing to have here, depending on who was in charge, uh, given, you know, how emotionally based and low IQ the American population
4: has become.
0: Right. And and go ahead, David.
4: Matt, I was thinking back in New York, like I had bodyguards, like, I, you know, like, I mean, I, but, but like people that uh, you know, were there to physically intimidate people in case violence broke out. And I think, you know, I heard Luke's story. You had your buddy that was basically like your bodyguard in the porn industry that was, you know, there to prevent you from getting beat up. And you probably used them to get rid of difficult people. You were probably that guy, you know, that had, you know, your entourage. And when there were people around, you'd like stick your bodyguard on them or like, you better be careful. You might get beat up. And, uh, you know, just the nature of competition. And, uh, you know, if it's racial dynamics, uh, group conflict, and there's not enough resources to go around. So I I was saying like, you know, in synagogue where you're, you know, violence is pretty unlikely to break out, but you're just talking about uh, getting the attention of a rich, prominent person in conflict among people who you have their self-interest in preventing the attention from going your direction uh, to your real group conflict where uh, there's violence. And, you know, when you're doing party promoting event organization Uh, Jewish communal affairs, uh, you you know, even synagogue, we got police present constantly in New York. We didn't have police often, but sometimes, but uh, you needed bodyguards. And like, I had to maintain friends that were just tough. Like, and it cost me money. Like, I didn't necessarily pay them, but like, you know, free tickets, uh, people that I, you know, bought food for hundreds of times. Like that, I spent thousands of dollars over periods of years hooking them up. And basically what they did for me is, you know, like, in public, they stood by my side, uh, you know, to intimidate people. And, like, it was just necessary. You needed it.
0: And uh, in California right now, we're experiencing a, a massive uh, heat wave. And California is asking residents not to charge their electrical vehicles just days after announcing a gas car ban. And uh, California is asking people to keep their AC at 78, their, their blackout warnings uh Elliot, uh do you do you drive a an all electric vehicle?
3: No, I, <laughs> I drive a I drive a gas guzzler, Luke. <laughs> Just a disgusting polluting gas guzzling monster. Awesome. Yeah. I'm I'm a I'm a bad citizen, Luke.
7: I started a new business, uh, Luke, uh, by yeah. the way. I uh, bought a fleet of flatbed uh, vehicles to pick up the Teslas and electric vehicles when they run out of of juice in rural areas, you know, because they've wandered in areas with no charging stations. So then we charge them an arm and a leg, uh, uh, you know, kind of hitting on Jewish heritage there to take them to the nearest tow uh, charging station.
4: That's hundreds of thousands of dollars. You bought a fleet of tow trucks? You're just saying you just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on a fleet of tow trucks? I mean, God bless you.
0: I think he was joking.
4: Well, I, mean, I you wish Think I was? Joking. Yes. I'd rather, I'd rather you weren't joking, and like you know, and, you know, share some of the wealth, man. Like well, with, keep, keep in mind,
7: like, a fleet, a fleet could be, entourage.
4: You a know, like fleet is anything more than drivers. one.
0: <laughs> and uh, Elliot, let, let's get back to dealing with difficult people. Are you more of a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn? Like, what are you most likely to do with difficult people? Fawn over them, fight them, freeze, flee.
3: Freeze. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a, uh, my, my uh, strategy, I think, I think it's the correct one, is to, you need to understand the dynamic and you need to become the gray man. Do you know, the, you know that expression?
0: Uh, yeah, where you just, uh, you don't put any energy into your interactions with difficult people.
3: Yeah, but you don't stand up. You don't become the tall poppet. You become the person that just blends in.
0: Gray rock. You gray oh. rock them.
3: Yeah, gray rock. Yeah. So I tend to be a gray rocker. Um, I'm thinking to your
4: book, and- Luke. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but the only time I remember you talking about an entourage is when god forbid you went to the porn convention in las vegas that you had an entourage so it seems like from your book that you almost always went solo maybe occasionally you invited people to parties but you're generally someone who went solo but i remember in your books where you do mention that you had a little entourage uh, that you went to strategically to the las vegas porn conventions with
0: yeah, I've uh, I'm pretty much a, a solo practitioner, but when I get to be part of an entourage, it's awesome. Like life is 5 times better when you're part of an entourage versus just, you know, doing things on your own. Like live streaming is 5 times better when you're part of an entourage rather than just doing it on your own.
4: My but- picture Elliot is a, a member of entourages. I mean, maybe Elliot has good points in your life where you had your own. I mean, I kind of like a geek squad and even, you know, had money or you know, like, I, you know, I was considered kind of like a geek squad. Uh, you know, and I was always the Jew involved. I was the lesser of the cool people that served a more intellectual function when I had cooler friends. I don't know if, Elliot, did you ever have your own squad? I'm sure you've been members of an entourage, but have you ever had your own entourage? Uh,
3: was I, like, a leader of an entourage? No. But uh, I, uh, I've always had this ability to sort of camouflage you know to um
4: i mean to work your way into social circles and become, well, just to sort of
3: blend my way in and not offend anyone and not necessarily be accepted but not rejected either right about I mean, making
4: yourself useful i mean like the duvid strategy make yourself useful or you say more just somehow you got your way in even though you weren't even useful
3: well uh Yes. Being useful is ultimately uh is a winner. It's always a winning strategy, right? If you're somebody that gets something done and nobody else can get done, you're you're at le you're in the fold and you're not ejected. But it doesn't mean that you're necessarily on any path towards leading the group, but you're you're like a trusted you're a trusted minister. That's the role I seem to be always in as a trusted minister.
0: you like like Capo Tutti fruity, more Tutti yeah. Frutti?
4: <laughs> I don't know the reference. A backup singer?
3: No, he's Capo
0: Tutti fri- Frutti is the guy who advises the, the Mafia Don. Oh, I didn't mean he's,
4: oh, the capo, oh, 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 capo he's the backup you, uh, singer going, ooh. No, no, capo,
3: cap, Capo, uh, no, Consigliere. Yeah, Consigliere,
0: you're the Consigliere, but I, like, I yeah. wanted to put in the Tutti Frutti.
3: Okay. Well, I've been, you know, it's funny you say that because I've been watching a lot of these mafia true crime yeah. uh, videos that have been popping up on my feed. Have, have you ever consumed these things? Or have you ever seen these I, things?
0: I'm not sure.
3: <laughs> oh my God, are they intense. They are so gripping. Like that world, that whole mafia world. Hey, Elliot? Let, yes.
7: Let, let me, I don't want to burst your bubble but a lot of that, uh, lot of that on TV is hype. Uh, yeah. Real life, a lot. Some of them lived very vanilla uh, uh, lives, and a lot of stuff is, is hyped on TV. Believe it or not, there's a few like Gaudy. He would mm-hmm. have been an example, but for the most part, they uh, they didn't like attention uh, very much. And the ones that craved it and went out and got it ended up either like Bugsy Siegel uh, or uh, or like Gaudy. They either got wasted away or they talked themselves into federal prison. But believe it or not. A lot of these guys had wives and children. In fact, I, I, I know personally of one a rather high up mafia, uh, Don, who has a uh, son that's a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point.
3: Well, that that's true. That's what I've learned through these documentaries. But, you know, I'm sure you know much more than me. But one of the biggest, like a lot of the mafia in New York didn't want any drug dealing because drug dealing, Created too much noise and attention and, and drew much drew so much scorn that it it it, it disrupted their other mother money making uh, opportunities that were not nearly as flamboyant. So like certain mafia dons really punished and would have somebody killed if they were dealing drugs, they had a very uh almost family values type approach to drug dealing it's just a very curious world but yeah i agree with you ronnie that makes sense they had a uh
7: there was that was the big separation when they decided to go and that was probably the gaudy more than anything with the where they where they morphed they mutated from a, an organization and a syndicate into a in just another street gang
4: well it was one thing i mentioned on the list also was you know the reality of orthodox Jewish mafia connections that, that uh, um, I, mean, I kind of knew about, but to see how that works and, you know, like Luke's saying, money is extremely important and there's a lot of reasons for Jewish mafia connections, like Italian mafia proximity. Uh, sometimes it's just, you know, you like, if you want to make yourself useful, having money to th- uh, throw around is always useful, but uh, being lawyers, uh, having political connections um, being able to, you know, uh, get people out of prison, you know, like if you have, uh, you are probably the single most useful thing that uh, your know, Jews do for the mafia is, uh, is having a better chance of getting people out of prison, um, you know, legal things, financial things. Uh, but, you know, there's many things as saying like geeky Jewish guys relatively do pretty well for themselves. You are know, saying you make yourself useful uh, if you're a powerful lawyer, you have connections, you have uh, your money that you know how to use. Uh, you, there's really, in many ways, nothing more powerful, even if you're not the strong arm.
7: And, you uh, know, the uh, the immediate past uh, mayor of Las Vegas, Oscar yeah. Goldman, yeah. was an exclusive mobster attorney. And when he turned out of office, his wife uh, replaced him and she's the current mayor. But he has some interesting stories to tell and he goes way back to you know lansky and such
0: and how about yourself rodney do you have uh, much experience with the mob
7: i'm not mobbed up of course i remember i i have to <laughs> but i'm uh, uh i i, I it, it's an interesting topic uh and it's something that i'm interested in and something that i wouldn't say in terms of the legal profession that things haven't crossed a path but uh it's uh, it's interesting. Dubin mentioned about the uh, you know squeaky Jewish. You know, there's only one real higher echelon person that was in, uh, say, the family uh, that lived to retire and die in his bed of old age, and that was Meyer Lansky too. Uh, and uh, he was most famous as the as the mob's accountant till he branched out in Cuba, and uh, had to take off on New Year's Eve. Uh, New Year's Eve uh you know in, in 1959 castro into cuba with just a uh suitcase and he you know a lot of people the fbi looked for years and years and years and years saying he had millions stashed the fact of the matter is he barely escaped with his life with a suitcase and when castro marched in uh, that's where castro got a lot of his initial cash was he seized all of the uh uh mafia casinos that had Literally turned the Havana Oceanfront into a, a Riviera, and he confiscated all the cash, banned gaming, uh, and he sat on a boatload of cash. And in fact, I can't remember which one it was, but he was supposed to be on the flight to the Dominican Republic with Lansky. <clears throat> he decided to wait till the next morning, and he actually got captured by uh, Castro and got auctioned off.
0: Okay, well, gonna... not... go ahead, David. Yeah, I mean,
4: because. You know, a lot of people don't do anything wrong but there's larger connections so I you mean, i did building permits in uh you know brooklyn new york and uh you know trump you know, was construction i remember seeing people from trump also at the department of buildings uh, but you know, construction's probably the most mafia related uh, business uh there's also like garbage disposal and uh, various things and you are know, also seeing among orthodox jews there's a lot of people that are in and out of prison mostly for financial things so if you're in you're probably la also but you're certainly brooklyn there's all sorts of people who got busted for some insurance fraud or construction or uh tax evasion not... tax evasion well well I mean, that happens also by saying like if you're in business in construction you cut uh uh there's all sorts of so in financial areas so in the mafia you you know they, they run businesses like garbage disposal uh you know construction uh very you know, like concrete and uh scaffolding or various things and a lot of those people are in and out of prison for violence and you're saying they might have done violence on behalf of the mafia but that they don't they're not full-time violence uh you know they work uh you know, regularly like uh you know doing garbage or construction and uh you know but they're part of the larger uh, community, you know, really, they're usually uh, Catholics in New York, Italian in the Jewish community. It's also like that with the uh, financial stuff where you'll have people that uh, uh, you know, did financial crimes, spent a few years in prison and uh, and come out uh, and, and the people in the community know about it, where the lawyers that represented them. Um, But but the majority of the people never committed any crimes. You have the, you know, it's more a communal thing and the larger connection. So you say, okay, I did building permits. I wasn't part of the mafia, uh, but, uh, you know, I worked together with, you know, so to say the mafia, and it didn't mean I worked with the mafia, just saying that a lot of the people who did construction were in and out of prison for mafia related stuff. And, you know, so there's a more complicated dynamic than like Las Vegas and actual crime syndicates.
0: Yeah. Okay. I want to wrap things up. Uh, Rodney, any, any final words for this evening? Well, there
7: is, I did have an encounter, Luke, which I can talk about now it's been a long time, but we'll talk about that on another show, but real briefly, uh, Meyer Lansky was the first Jew that Israel actually sent back, uh, who had taken refuge as a Jew in Israel. And he was the first one. Uh, and, uh, they didn't send anybody else back until the 19, uh, uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. You might remember that case it was a sexual abuse case, but it was interesting. There was quite a debate within when Meyer Lansky fled to Israel because he was going to be arrested for tax evasion, which he eventually beat and then retired in Miami Beach. But the only two people that I can remember in history, a state of Israel that have ever been sent back to the United States. Meyer Lansky was the first one in 1971, I believe.
0: Okay, Rodney. Good to talk to you, uh, Elliot Blatt. Any any final words for this evening?
3: Uh, no final words, though. I have many anecdotes to relate at a later date. Ah, looking show.
0: forward to it. Looking forward to it. And uh, David, any any final words for this evening? Yeah, I'm enjoying this, and you know, kind of
4: clarifying my identity and my path in Judaism because you're know, like I studied in Israel and then moving to New York and living, you know, probably a full five years exclusively among Haredi Jews. And yeah, I think I mentioned it for a few times where, you know, this guy who used to toss me money every once in a while and I needed work and, it, you know, turned out he was a big contractor and he had, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, sketchy people. You know, he had like 40 people working for him and he took me down to his construction site to uh, monitor his workers. So, you know, it's interesting thinking the dynamic of, uh, you know, Jews and wealth and running businesses and then, you know, like if you're in the synagogue, how Jews interact with just each other versus, uh, you know, the person that, uh, you know, maybe uh, runs a business. And then, you know, certainly uh, kept me strong in my Judaism, you know, having met some of these people, just seeing their wealth, you know, like uh, you know, as a charity collector or someone, you know, like uh, let's go to this neighborhood and uh, help raise funds for a Jewish charity, then to seeing actually what it is that they do. And, uh, you know, I've read Luke's books. I'm certainly in Hollywood. Uh, you know, it, it's like that from a different realm that I'm not uh, familiar with. So I find these uh, conversations pretty enlightening. Thanks.
0: Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.